This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. It's found on page 238 in the Bibles there in your rows if you want to follow along as I read. 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. So you saw uh, probably on the programs or on the sides there, the banners, uh, we have a new sermon series. We're starting today, uh, The Life of David, and uh, this is, of course, the head of uh, Michelangelo's very famous sculpture, uh, The David, and we spared you the whole thing, (laughs) Uh, the full Monty, as they would say. I think we did not decide to put on the program. Um, But I wrote most of the sermon this week uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, in between meetings of our denomination's General Assembly, and uh, I did not imagine or know that there was going to be a a pretty major Supreme Court decision uh, during all of this time, and thus uh, I haven't really addressed that in the sermon, nor does the text actually lend itself to that. But I do want to say just a couple of things really quickly before we get in to 1 Samuel 16, and these are not uh, political or, or even legal ideas. I don't have much to offer you in that 
realm, uh, but a few theological and missional ones. And so just three very quick things this morning, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the text. And the first thing is, you know, if you've been around New City for a while, uh, you know that we believe that uh, all people bear the image of God. And that's true, uh, and if that's true, rather, it, it means that all people, regardless of race or class or gender or age or ability, have dignity and deserve our care, including the unborn. How we treat the weakest and the most vulnerable in our society is very much a social justice concern. And then whenever there is a move toward justice, we should rejoice in that. And some of you I know have been praying for uh, this, a decision like this for a long time. It comes after 50 years of sustained activism against substantial odds, and for that we give thanks. And I also want to recognize, I know not everybody here is on the same page, and please know that you don't have to be in order to be welcome here, but I do want you to know what the church teaches and why so many are rejoicing. The second thing is just to note that legal verdicts are not the extent of being pro-life. And so if this decision results in more children being born into the world, it also means that there will be more children born into the world into difficult circumstances. And so the call for us then is to love and serve our city. That only increases now. We must care for at-risk mothers and their children and provide safe alternatives to abortion so that women and babies can receive the care that they need. We also need to work for the creation of a society so ubiquitously defined by mutual care, attentiveness to the disadvantaged and veneration for life of all kinds. As one theologian has said, if abortion is now to be made illegal in many of our states, the next step is to make it feel unnecessary. And again, many of you are already involved in this kind of work. And for others, it perhaps now is a time to, to jump in. We have partnered as a church with ministries like Life Forward and other pregnancy care centers, they're going to need your financial support as their, uh, their opportunities for ministry uh, only increase. They might need your volunteer hours as well. Perhaps it's time to consider adoption or foster care or coming alongside others who are engaged in that work. There are many here in our midst who are. There's Lydia's House and Back to Back Cincinnati and Whiz Kids and so many more ways to engage with children and parents to lighten loads to ease burdens, to create opportunities, to be a blessing. And then just the very last thing I'll say is the temperature, as I think you all know, in our culture is really high right now. And not just because of this, certainly before this. Uh, I just want to give you permission to not feel like you need to make that higher. You don't have to escalate those things. In fact, it is possible uh, to hold your convictions and still be gentle and loving and patient and forbearing and humble with people with whom you disagree. In fact, that's what you, if you are a Christian, that's what you're called to. As St. Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so let's pray, and then we're going to get into uh, 1 Samuel 16 this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are the source of all truth, all wisdom, all justice and love. And so we ask that you would lead us this morning through this meditation on your word. Would you help us to apply it in our own lives? Would you help us to live for your glory and also for the good of our neighbors, the good of our city? We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, when the... the 
first of the Lord of the Rings movies came out back in what, 2001, I guess it was. I, I remember reading a review. I wish I still had it. I don't, I don't have it anymore, but there was a review that came out of the movies, and uh, the, the substance of the review was to argue that the movies had done a pretty faithful job of picking up on some of the themes that appear in the books. And it spotlighted one scene in that first movie in particular as representative of Tolkien's writing. The hobbits are in a pub, and in the darkness of the corner sits this guy named Strider, who later we learn is named Aragorn. And the reviewer, I always remember the way he put it, the reviewer said he picked up on one of Tolkien's themes, and this is what the review said, you better be nice to everyone because you never know if the shady guy in the corner is going to be the next king of the world. (laughs) You better be nice to everyone. You never know if the scruffy guy in the corner might be the next king of the world. In other words, true greatness is not something you can always perceive externally. True greatness isn't something you can always measure with external criteria. And that's very much the substance of our story that Abby just read to us today. There is a search going on for a worthy king for God's people. The first king, Saul, had failed. The prophet Samuel then is sent to anoint the new king, but there's some confusion about what to look for and where to look for it. And so what I want you to see in our text this morning as we walk through it, we're going to see where the world tends to look for greatness, then we're going to see where the Lord looks, and then finally, as we think about true greatness, we'll talk about how to get it and how to grow in it. All right? So first, where does the world look? The world is looking for greatness in the wrong place. The story begins, as I said, with Samuel. Uh, He's distraught. He's, He's grieving over Saul. Saul has not been immediately removed from office, but God has revealed through Samuel that Saul's destiny is not going to, or his dynasty rather, is not going to continue, and therefore there's a need for a new king. So God God says to Samuel the prophet, he says, get up, Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but get up, stop your crying, get your anointing oil, and head to Bethlehem. I've seen the true king. He's one of Jesse's sons. Now Samuel is not wild at all about this plan. It is not an enviable thing to go and anoint a new king when there's a present king still on the throne. Samuel knows that if Saul catches wind of this, then he's likely a dead man. So God says, I want you to bring a sacrifice, and then if anybody questions you along the way, tell them you're going to Bethlehem to worship. So Samuel gets to the village, and the elders of the city kind of funny about it. They're like, are you, do you come in peace? What's going on here? It's a little bit like being called to the principal's office, right? When you're called down to the principal, you know it's usually not good news. When the prophet visits your town out of the blue, it's usually not good news. But, but uh, Samuel says, I come in peace. And then they arrange for a worship service. But go back up to verse 1 with me for just a second. It says, fill your horn with oil and go. God's saying this to Samuel. I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, the Hebrew here is actually a little bit more concrete or pictorial than than it comes across in English. Literally, it says, for I have seen myself a king among Jesse's sons. I have seen my... God looks at Jesse's sons and says, I have seen the new king of Israel. So the sons start to parade out. The the oldest comes first. Verse 6, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab looks the part. He's big, he's strong, he's muscular, he's tough. 
William Wallace, uh, his, you know, Braveheart, you know, the real Braveheart. William Wallace, the historians tell us, was uh, six foot five, six foot six, probably, which is a big deal because in the 1200s, the highlands of Scotland, everybody was about five five. That was the average. And there's a museum in Stirling where you can go even today and see William Wallace's broadsword. The sword itself was five feet six inches long. So you can just imagine him in battle sweeping everyone away, right? This is what greatness looks like. Tall and strong and muscular. A leader like that inspires confidence, a sense of safety and protection. Samuel sees Eliab and much like this, right? Thinks this has got to be the guy. This is the guy. Verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. So verse 1, God sees the king. Verse 6, Samuel thinks he sees the king. Verse 7, God says, nope, not that guy, not that one. You're looking wrongly. Samuel's problem is he's looking for greatness in the wrong way and in the wrong place. He's looking on the outside. But true greatness, true beauty, true character is not external, but internal. The Lord looks at the heart. This really is different. I mean, the, the, the world in general tends to look at the externals, right? And, and we know that it, this is killing us. We as a culture are obsessed with externals, with beauty, with youth, success, money, power, all the things that you can look on and measure on the outside. And, and we know this is harming us, right? Facebook and Instagram, we, we know what this can do to mental health as we feel badly about ourselves looking at everybody else's curated externals or, or maybe even crumbling ourselves under the pressure of carefully curating our own image. Pornography deeply, intensely trains us to look at people just the opposite of the way that the Lord does. Pornography trains you to obsess over and objectify the outside of a person, rather than looking to and appreciating the content of their character. It trains you to habitually look at the things that are not ultimately what God sees and esteems. All this with devastating effects. And think also, not, not only is this something that something really damaging about obsessing over externals, but also externals are fleeting. Externals are not something that you can hang on to. Beauty, strength, even your gifts and talents. All these things are going to falter and fade and eventually fail. Live long enough, friends, and your beauty will fade. No matter how many times you hit the gym, no matter how much work you can have done, externals will fade. Your strength, your skills, your mental acuity, they all diminish with time. But internal beauty, character, wisdom, inner strength, these are things that can grow and grow and grow all the way to the end of your life. Samuel's looking in the wrong place for greatness, and most of the time, so are we. I listened to uh, uh, Tim Keller talk a little while back about uh, George McDonald's book, The Princess and Curdie. It's a book I read a number of years ago. It's uh, George McDonald, late 19th century, wrote a couple of fairy tales. Uh, Princess and the Goblin was one. The sequel was The Princess and Curdie. And, and uh, in that story, Curdie, who's a, a working-class little boy, a miner, works in the mines, and He's sent on a quest by the princess's fairy grandmother. And uh, much like an anointing, 
she doesn't just send him with a task, a quest. She also equips him for the task. And so she sends him out to, with a special power. And the way she does this is she takes his hands and she holds them into a fire. This is a fairy tale. Uh, she holds them into a fire of rose petals. And it hurts terribly. It burns. But when he pulls his cleansed hands out, he has a power. When he touches somebody else's hands, he can look past outward appearances and discern what they're really like on the inside. And so along the way, he encounters a monster, a brutish beast, a scary-looking person, only to see inside the, the damaged and wounded heart of a child. Or on the other hand, he encounters a beautiful woman, he touches her hands, and instead he sees the claws of a vulture. And Tim Keller says what happens in that story really is he gets God's eyes. And that's what we need. We need God's eyes. If we look on the outside, if we look only to the externals, not only are we going to misevaluate the people around us, that is, you're going to be overly impressed by people you shouldn't be. You're going to pass over or ignore people you should be longing to have in your life. Not only are you going to misevaluate the people around us, but you're also going to pursue, be pursuing the wrong things in your own life. I mean, again, think about it, friends. What what is really going to make your life great? I mean, is it your weight? Is it your wrinkles? Is it your clothes? Is it how much money you have? Is it even your gifts or your skills? Is that really going to set the course of your life, your destiny? Or does true greatness lie somewhere else? What questions are you asking yourself when you think about what a big life, a great life would be? Are you asking yourself things like, am I growing in wisdom? Am I learning to love and be loved? Do I have integrity? Can I handle criticism? Can I develop and keep friendships? Can I love people who are different than me? Can I move toward uncomfortable places? Am I content? Am I joyful? You see how those things last so much longer and shape your destiny so more completely than any of the external categories of beauty or success. So first, the world is looking for greatness in the wrong places. But secondly, and we learn from our text, the Lord looks differently. The Lord looks at the heart. Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. The Lord sees not as man sees. So Samuel learns Eliab Despite looking the part, he's not it. He's not chosen. Then next comes Abinadab, the next son to pass before Samuel. Verse 8, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Shammah, uh, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Eugene Peterson uh, says that he first heard this story uh, as his mother would tell stories to the kids at night. And uh, she said his mother was just a great storyteller, but she would embellish you know, on the details to keep her young son's involved and interested. And so the way that she told this story to them, he always remembered it, is that all this was happening at like a county fair. She said, you know, mom would sort of fill out the details. Imagine it's the county fair and the Ferris wheels in the background and the smells of funnel cake and caramel corn are in the air and you can hear the merry-go-round and the laughter of children. And then Samuel shows up and he's kind of like a carnival barker and kind of like the judge at a 4-H fair. But it's not animals that are 
passing by. Instead, it's the sons of Jesse. And Eliab comes first, and we all know him. He's the big brother. The text tells us that. He's tall, and he's strong, and he looks the part, but he's not chosen. Eugene Peterson's mom would go on and add attributes for each of the other brothers as well, even though the text doesn't have them. Aminadab, she said, was the brainy one, the only college kid of the bunch, but brains evidently were not what the Lord needed either because he was not chosen. And then Shama comes, the mincing little sophisticate who thinks he's way too cool for his town. He's got bigger plans, he's got better ambitions, but still, he's not chosen. And after the third son, the Bible quits naming, but Peterson's mom did not, although the names start to sound a little less Hebrew. She named the fourth one Olaf, (laughs) then Gump, Clug, and finally Chugger was the seventh son. And Peterson wrote, he said, later in life when I was reading the Bible for myself, I was quite frequently surprised by the omissions in the text. The Holy Spirit left out some of the best parts. So they get through all the sons, right? None are chosen, and Samuel is bewildered at this. Has something gone wrong? Is he losing his prophetic edge? Wait, this is Bethlehem, right? Am I in the right place? What's going on? Finally, verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And then Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. There remains yet the youngest. Now, your translation if you're looking in your Bible, it probably has a little footnote there next to the word youngest, and probably down in your bottom small print there, it says something like, this means smallest. It's actually a really hard word to bring into English. It maybe means something like kid brother or youngest brother, but it actually even has more of a negative connotation than that. It carries the undertone of absolute insignificance. And you see this even in the context of the story, right? I mean, uh, all the sons are brought forward. Samuel says, do you have another one? Well, yeah, Jesse says, but he's only the runt of the litter. That's probably what it really means. He's the runt. David's dad is just so sure that he could not possibly be the one that's going to be chosen. He does not even invite him to come out. This is the kid that you pick last on recess. The kid maybe who's not even invited to recess. Robert Alter, Hebrew scholar at uh, Berkeley, California, he puts it this way. He said, David is a kind of male Cinderella, left to his domestic chores instead of invited to the party. The David story plays out the theme of the reversal of primogeniture, I'll talk about that in a minute, that dominates Genesis. David is not the oldest, not even one of the seven sons, seven being the Hebrew number for completion. David is the eighth child and therefore not even there at all. I like that line. David is a male Cinderella, doing the chores while the siblings are invited to the ball. Now, what's Robert Alter saying? He's saying there's a theme that really runs throughout all the Bible to be especially prevalent in those early pages of the book of Genesis, the first book, where God refuses to look at people through the world's evaluation system. You see, in the ancient world, there was what was called the law of primogeniture. That is, the oldest son got all the inheritance, ran the whole of the family business. And also, the most beautiful woman got the most powerful man. That's how things work. But all throughout the Bible, Alter says, we see God turning this around, turning this over, refusing to do his saving work according to the world's values. And so God chooses Abel and not Cain, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau. He works through barren and old Sarah rather than lovely and youthful 
Hagar. He works through ugly Leah and not beautiful Rachel. God chooses the girl that no one wants and the son that is left behind and forgotten. And Robert Alter says that David's story is just a continuation of this theme that the Lord sees not as man sees. And this is really good news if you tend to think of yourself as relatively inconsequential, that no one would pick me, God wouldn't pick me, I don't know enough, I don't, I've got limited gifts and talents, I'm, I've got baggage, I've made bad choices, I'm broken, I'm messed up. And guess what? If that's true of you, you're just God's type. And the Apostle Paul put it this way in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1, he said, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God shows and still chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows and still chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows and still chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast the presence of God. And you know, Eugene Peterson, he said that for all the embellishments that his mom made, she got that central point of the story exactly right. Because he said when he, he saw himself in David's place, left behind, left out, but he said, here in this story, in my insignificant sheep-keeping obscurity, I am chosen. Because the Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord looks at the heart. So we're looking for greatness, usually in the wrong places. We instead need to have God's eyes. The Lord looks to the heart. And then finally, as we think about true greatness, real greatness, let's think about where it comes from and then how to grow in it. Verse 12, it says, And he sent and brought David in. Now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Now, it is important to note here, you know, David... He is the run to the litter. He's not even invited to the party. He doesn't have all the standing that you would expect for someone to be picked. But he's not lacking entirely in external things, right? He's not lacking in talent either. We learn that as we go on in the story. And so uh, it's important here just, you, it is possible to do an overcorrect here that's wrong, where we come to despise or disparage external things, gifts, talents, and so on. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible just says don't trust those things. Don't overestimate those things. It doesn't say despise them, right? It's just that true greatness lies elsewhere, what we esteem ought to be elsewhere. So first, right, true greatness, where does it come from? How you get it? Well, it comes from God. Verse 13, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Ryan kind of mentioned this at the beginning of the service. You know, it would be a great mistake to think that what God was doing here is ultimately choosing the, the one boy who had the perfect heart. Right? Eliab had a bad heart. The other brothers had bad hearts. David had a good heart. But if that's what you think, then you're going to have a little trouble understanding the rest of the life of David because David does some questionable things. We'll see. He does some terrible things at times. How could somebody with a pure heart do that, you might think? And the truth of the matter is the testimony of Scripture is that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah says. Uh, Paul says, there's no one good, 
No, not one. So the Bible teaches that fundamentally no one has a good heart unless the Holy Spirit works to change them. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't sort of better and worse people relatively. There are truly cruel people. But the Bible would warn us and tell us the seeds of cruelty exist in everyone. Right? You have the capability of those things. There are truly greedy people, but the seeds of greed exist in everyone. There are liars, people who go through life deceiving everyone, but the seeds of deception run through every person, every heart. We all have sinful hearts, and so the only way then for true greatness to grow and to change David is for the Holy Spirit to come into his heart. And the story teaches us God sets his love on David, chooses David, and then the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. And I want to bring this out because I think most of what I've said this morning so far, as we walk through the story, it probably makes sense to you at some level. I mean, you can hear a message like this and think, all right, I get it, you know. Yes, true character is what matters. I shouldn't be so controlled by externals. I shouldn't judge a book by its cover. I should be working on the inner things rather than the outer things. But it's one thing to know this. It's another thing to see real change in your life. There's knowing what to do, and then there's really doing it. And the truth is, we're not capable of creating this, manufacturing this kind of true character, true wisdom, true beauty, true greatness all on our own. It has to come from the Holy Spirit. Real change all the way down to the heart is something the Lord has to do. So true greatness comes from God. But then the way that it grows in us, the way the Holy Spirit uh, forges these things in us, is most often through a kind of training or discipline, you might say. My daughter's playing um, middle school volleyball now. We've noticed just even in the month of, uh, first month of the summer, that the ante has gone up a little bit from elementary school to middle school volleyball. The ante's gone up. Now it's not just practice, but there's conditioning, there's running, there's stretching, there's agility drills, there's strength training, there's uh, push-ups and as a consequence, she's been sore. She's been, uh, it's been difficult for her and the other girls. But under that discipline, we've already seen in a month, they're growing into better players. And David's life, we'll see, is one that has a lot of that kind of discipline, a lot of that hardship. But none of it is wasted by God. Even here in our story, right, David is not at this party. Why? Well, because he's left behind to do the menial work of a shepherd, which was not considered a good job. This is not a high vocation. This was not fun. But years later, David writes probably the most quoted passage in all of Scripture. Your grandma probably has a coffee mug with it on it. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters in an unglamorous vocation. God is preparing, training David. And it doesn't stop there. Samuel anoints David as the king, but remember, there's already a king on the throne. And so David becomes a servant in Saul's court. And he does this work well, but Saul eventually comes to despise David and eventually to try to kill David. And so David has to run off into the wilderness on the run, hunted, constantly in danger. And there in the desert, God meets him again. The wilderness is where David's character grows. Diamonds are created 
under intense pressure, and so our character and beauty and greatness forged in hard places. The writer of Hebrews would later say it in Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And lastly, true greatness is ultimately in Jesus Christ. You know, David's not the only one who came from Bethlehem. And when Jesus was born, he was kept outside with the sheep too, right? And the Holy Spirit rushes on Jesus at his baptism, and the very next thing, the very next thing, the Holy Spirit does is sends Jesus into the wilderness to be harassed, not by Saul, by Satan himself. And though Jesus had all the beauty and the greatness of heaven when he came to earth, people did not see this. Isaiah 53 says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. We esteemed him not. And he did this for us. Jesus Christ took on flesh, walked among us. He went to the cross to die for our sins. The true king suffers for his servants. The true shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Isaiah continues, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. David is ultimately pointing us to Jesus Christ and the invitation to all of us this morning and throughout all of the series is to come to him. To come to Jesus as our Savior and also to come to Jesus as the supplier of true greatness. When we're united to him, his life begins to spill over into our life. We have to be done now, but uh, I'll just leave you with this uh, last little story. C.S. Lewis uh, has a novel called The Great Divorce. It's about a uh, group of folks from hell. It's fiction. A group of folks from hell who make their way up to the outskirts of heaven, and they get to sort of peek in on what's happening in heaven, and, and they see and meet people, and they have a guide who's with them, and they see one uh, immeasurably beautiful person. And I'll just read to you a little bit from the book. The character says, Only partly do I remember the unbearable beauty of her face. Is it? Is it? I whispered to my guide. Not at all, said he. It's somebody you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Aye, she's one of the great ones. You never would have heard of her on earth. But you know that fame in heaven and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who are all these young men and all these young women on each side of her? They're her sons and daughters. Well, she must have a very large family, sir. No, she didn't have any children of her own. But every young man or every boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. In her, they became themselves, and now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said, there's joy enough in the little finger of a great saint, such as a yonder lady, to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. Friends, be like Sarah Smith, right? Pursue true greatness. Fame in heaven, fame on earth are two quite different things. We need God's eyes to look past the externals and to look to the heart. Let's pray.
Father, we need your eyes. We need your perspective to escape the captivity to eternal and fleeting things that is so easy to capture our vision, capture our minds. And so, Lord, we want to, we want to grow in love. We want to grow in joy and peace and patience, kindness, faithfulness, self-control, all these things. We know that needs to come by your Spirit. And so we ask that you would, through your Spirit, grow us into something beautiful. And Lord, would you even move us toward these things this morning as we worship and as we come to your table. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. To whom David points, amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.